You're listening to The 66, a podcast of the Asheville Road Church of Christ. I'm Andrew Kingsley, and we have Drew Kaiser here as well. And we are in the book of Ezra. We're in chapter 8. In our last episode, we talked about chapter 7. And now we are going to get into the execution of the law that we set up from our last episode. So for more background, go back and listen to our last episode. But just for a really quick uh, background into what we're talking about today, we have arrived at a point in history where the temple has been finished now under Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Uh, Ezra has been permission to go to, has been given permission to go to Jerusalem uh, under a decree by Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And so now we are here in chapter 8 where Ezra is about to take off and head to Jerusalem. And we know from chapter 7 and verse 9 that he's going to leave on the first day of the first month. And so this is what we're picking up here. The first day of the first month in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, which is going to be, let's see here, which is going to be um, 459 B.C., which is, I've got it listed, maybe 58, 59, somewhere around in there, uh, close to 460 B.C. I've got this 459. And so uh, he's going to, they're about to take off and leave, but here in the first chunk in verses 1 through 14, um, we have a we have a list of all the people that are with Ezra. Um, he's going to say, these are all the people that came with me, basically. And he lists all these people. And in those numbers, we get, uh, there's 1,500 men listed here directly. There's If you add those numbers up, you should get 1,496. And then plus you have Ezra and three other guys mentioned by name. They're not included in those numbers. So you got And don't fi- forget the women... And the mm-hmm. children, which we know yeah. from, not to spoil it, but they will mm-hmm. come up later. Yeah. They're not listed. There could be three, four thousand, five thousand mm-hmm. people. Yeah, there's a commentary I was reading beforehand. He's got the number as many as 9,000, and that's just yeah. based on five people per family. So if you're reading through there in the first chunk of chapter 8, 1 to 14, and... Um, I guess they had larger families in those days. Yeah. You know, that like, would be... Those would be some pretty big families yeah, today. 9,000, but that that's probably realistic because people had several children. It was still a rural society, so they had to have somebody to, to work the farms mm-hmm. and watch the livestock and do, yeah. do all the work. You think about David's house, how many how many brothers mm-hmm. that guy had and... Yeah, Jacob, true. of course, famously had twelve sons and one daughter. Yeah, so there's. I mean, this could be. I mean, we have this nine thousand is based on just five per family, but if you've got families with ten, you know, just a few families with ten or twelve, that's going to make this number go up. Mm-hmm. Certainly, much more. So I think it's safe to say, you know, minimum here, you got nine thousand people total that are about to hit the road on this first day of the first month. And so uh, they're going to leave, and then you see in verse 15, uh, Ezra says, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. Now this river that runs to Ahava, there's kind of some obscurity around it. Some people think that we can't know what it is, but most likely we do. Uh, This is probably referring to a small stream that flows into the Euphrates, and it was about an eight days journey from Babylon. So as we're going to see here in a minute, this will line up with our table. So they go to this little stream. They probably travel for eight days, get to this stream outside of Babylon. And then for the next uh, three days, they're going to recruit some Levites. At the end of verse 15, uh, Ezra says, As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there were none of the sons of Levi." And so he's going to go around and look for some Levites. He's going to send some folks out right there in verse 16. He sends them to this guy, Ido, Edu, however you want to pronounce it, it's fine with me. Um, and this guy is in charge of this place, Cassiphia, um, which we're not 100% sure what this place is from it what I've sounds, read in the commentaries. Yeah, I was reading it. For some reason, I thought of Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> yeah. It just seems like a fantasy name. Yeah. They, 
They went to Casifia. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I tried to look that up too, just to see where it was on on a map, and nobody really knows where that is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's safe to say it's somewhere in Palestine-ish. Yeah. We'll say that. Yeah. yeah. Ish. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got Palestine here. Um, and what happens? But, but is, wait a second. Was it? Um, so you said this was. They were um, near this stream that comes out of the Euphrates. So we're talking. Mm-hmm. We're still in Mesopotamia, right? We are eight days away from Babylon at this point. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of where they had been spending their captivity. Mm -hmm. Maybe, and maybe that's why we don't know the location. This is one of the cities that they formed in captivity or something like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah, and this is mentioned, uh, it could be referred to uh, several different times throughout the Old Testament under an abbreviated name of just Av, in the Hebrew, of just Av instead of Avah. Or Iva instead of um, Ava or Ahava. Um, there's some speculation as to whether or not that's the correct thing, but that's really neither he, here nor there uh, for our purposes. They're at some river, probably about eight days away. They're there for three days to get Levites, which they end up doing. Ezra sends some guys out right down there in verse 18. Ezra says, By the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons and kinsmen. So we get, we end up getting um, 240 people right there. You can see in the numbers you get 20 and then 220. But there's also a few guys mentioned by name in here, uh, which is going to add up to 258 people uh, by my count is what we're going to add. And that's going to bring our total number of just men to 1,758 people. So we don't have any women and children in here, but the total number of men that we have right now is right around 1,758 people. And these guys are going to take off here pretty soon. So now they're all, you can just imagine this huge group of people, they're all by this little stream that runs into the Euphrates. Uh, They kind of just started their journey And here they are gathering together, and now they're about to make their final preparations to leave. And as something that your family might do, that I'm sure lots of Christian families do, before you go on any big trip, you might say a prayer in your car or say a prayer all together before you ever get in your car, you know, right before you make sure all the kids are going to the bathroom or whatever. Um, Well, that's that's what they did right here. Uh, You can look in verse 21. He actually, they don't just pray, they pray and they fast. And they pray and fast for protection. Uh, If you read in verse 21, I proclaimed a fast there at the river uh, Ahava, which we've already talked about, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So basically what happens here is Ezra refuses a royal escort from Artaxerxes because of his faith in God. He says, look, I told Artaxerxes that you don't need to give us an escort because the hand of our God is on us, uh, and the power of his wrath is against everyone else. So what they do is they they fast and they pray to God for safety, and that's what they get, um, as we'll read on later. Uh, But right here in verses 24 to 30, so now they've all gathered, they said a prayer, and now Ezra's going to divvy out this last bit of responsibility of carrying the gold and silver, of being responsible for all the gold and all the silver that they have, that you can read the specific amounts in verses 26 and 27. Uh, But when we get to verse 28, you have Ezra going directly to them and telling them, look, you guys are in charge of the gold and silver. He says this, And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of of the house of the Lord. So the priests and Levites took over the way to the silver. So they are now in charge of the money. 
Now, with all this stuff done, verse 33, on the fourth day, so they've been hanging out here. They left on the first day. They've been there for three days. So now they're on day four, and now they're heading out. Um, I don't know. Not the fourth day. The twelfth day, sorry. On the twelfth day. Now, keep in mind, they started off on the first day. They make this eight-day trek to uh, this river next to the city, Ahava, and now they've done their final prep, and they're about to leave, so here is your 12 days. With so they really rooms. haven't gotten going yet. Yeah. Right it reminds now. me of a trip to my mother-in-law's during the holidays. <laughs> you know, we go a few miles, have to stop and go to the restroom. Yep. Go, go a few miles. Oh, we forgot something. Turn around go back to the house. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of false starts here. And I, I think it's interesting. Do you, do you read this? That they got to Ahava and you know then just for the first time thought about the Levites. Yeah. I, I was reading this and I thought, did did they not think about the Levites till they got to Ahava? It must have, yeah. Ezra was not that kind of guy, so it must have been part of the plan. But it reads like we got to Ahava and then thought, hey, <laughs> we don't have any Levites, yeah. So we go back, but that's. That that can't be Ezra's yeah. mo. That's just not the way he operated. He was very mm-hmm. systematic, you know, in his planning. I, I see him as a as a good planner. Oh yeah. So you know the details of why they did it this way is not here. Twelve may they may have purposely waited twelve days as kind of a ceremonial thing. The number twelve yeah. pops up a lot in this particular text. Uh, later there'll be a list of twelve families. And I don't, I don't think that's by accident that it's twelve. Mm-hmm. But oh, yeah. anyway, yeah. So they've they've taken off here, and um, right down here in verse, let's see, thirty-one. You see that prayer and fasting that they did earlier has done them some good. Uh, they go to Jerusalem. The hand of God was on us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem. So they finally get now right here in verse uh, thirty-two. You have the summation of five months or four months, I believe. It was a mm-hmm. four month. Yeah, it's yeah. four. It was a four month journey. It's the first first day of first month to the first day of the fifth month. Yeah, is what chapter seven says. Yeah. yeah. So we have a four month trip summed up right there in just those words. We came to Jerusalem. That's, uh, yeah. I guess, a short and sweet way to tell a story uh, in four words. So they're there, and then once they get there, they're going to weigh the silver and the gold. Just as um, Ezra had told the priests to do, they're going to weigh it, and then once everything is weighed and recorded, uh, this is they probably weighed it and record it so they could send back some official uh, documents to the king saying this is how much we used. Um, but right here in verse 35, they're going to offer some sacrifices, and then in verse 36, they're going to send out that letter that we read from Artaxerxes in our last episode. They're going to send that out to all the governors in this area. Basically to tell them, hey, our research chief said we could do this. You're supposed to help us. So now they're there. They've made it. They've sent out all this stuff. They've made some sacrifices. And they have weighed the gold. Now we're ready to go. Um, and what's going to happen in verse in chapter 9 is we're going to find Ezra's problem. And I failed to mention this at the start, but we have our, our material for today divided up into two uh, main areas. We've already covered the first one, that is Ezra's journey. The second one is going to be Ezra's problem, which is what we're about to hit right here in chapters 9 and 10. That's going to get us through the book of Ezra. But in chapter 9, the problem is identified, and that is Israel's failure to be holy. Verse 1, After these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. And they've intermarried. It's basically the problem. The problem that he has, and the problem that's identified here is, our nation is no longer set apart and holy as it was called to be. These people have fallen under the same sin that Solomon did, that ended up destro- that ended up being the cause of the kingdom being divided. Uh, they've married uh, these people that follow after foreign gods. So Ezra is very upset. Um, you can read in verse 5, At the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and cloak torn, 
fell on my knees and spread out uh, my hands to the Lord my God saying, and he's going to come here and pray. But let's back up to verse 3 and read this. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and cloak and pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. So Ezra was very upset about this. Uh, not happy. He's pulling hair out of his head and he's tearing his clothes. And now at the evening sacrifice, after he sat all day just appalled, as he says, he's going to say this uh, famous prayer here. And he starts off saying, Oh my God, I'm ashamed. And I blush to lift my face to you, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And so he's admitting uh, the problem. They are identifying the problem. And um, when we get through the end of this prayer, uh, we're going at the end of the chapter, is going to lead us into chapter 10. So after this prayer, the problem is going... Now the problem has been identified in chapter 10. The problem is going to be addressed and resolved. But first it's going to be addressed here in verses 1 through 15. Um, he says this prayer, everyone starts crying bitterly. Verse 2, this guy Shechaniah uh, says this, We have broken our faith with God and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. And so in verse 5, Ezra and the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do this, and they take an oath. And then, uh, so now the problem is addressed. They say, hey, we know there's a problem. This is how we want to solve it. Now here's where the problem gets solved in verses um, well, actually, we're jumping ahead of ourselves. Let's go down here in verse uh, 7 and 8. They make a proclamation throughout all Judah and Jerusalem and say, everyone has to meet. We're going to have this huge meeting, and if you don't come within three days, uh, all of your property will be forfeited, and you will be banned from Jerusalem. And so everybody has to show up to this. It's a mandatory meeting for every single person in the nation of Israel that's left, anyway, in this remnant. So they all gather together on the ninth month of the 20th day of the month, which this one guy believes he has nailed down to December the 8th of this particular year. But either way, this is in November, December. It's a really cold time of the year. And you can read in the end of this verse, all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. So we kind of have a depressing, I guess, uh, view of a situation here. It's raining, it's cold, there's stress because we're in a bad situation, people are shaking, um, and he comes before them and tells them, this is what we've done, and this is what we're going to do. Um, read in verse 14, let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. So, this is what's going to happen. Verse 16, the returned exiles did so. So now the problem is resolved. This happens. Everyone, uh, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, is mentioned those who have intermarried with foreign people. Um, and so they, they hold true to what they said. They put away their wives and their children, much as Abraham did uh, with Hagar and Ishmael back in Genesis. So now we've got uh, our whole section here outlined uh, we have Ezra on his journey back to Jerusalem, and now we have Ezra resolving this problem and really carrying out sort of a harsh execution of the law. An abrupt ending to a book. I mean, it yeah. doesn't feel, when you finish that, it doesn't feel like we're finished with the book. It feels like next week, yeah. so we keep saying next week, next mm -hmm. episode... Uh, we're going to be doing Ezra chapter 11, but that's it. Mm -hmm. That's the end of the book. And it ends with a lot of emotion, a lot of hurt, uh, the fierceness and the wrath of God, whereas we saw a lot of grace at the beginning of the book. But uh, I thought it was an interesting parallel that you drew between Hagar and Ishmael because this is kind of the same thing. You mm -hmm. know, God's covenant, this is still about the covenant God made with Abraham starting in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, in your seed or in your offspring will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk more you know, about what was wrong with these marriages yeah. in the next 
section, but for now, I think it's interesting that in chapter 9, verse 2, uh, you know, the problem is they've taken some of the daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Race there is from the Hebrew offspring, which is the word used in the covenant to Abraham. The holy race, Abraham's seed, has become mixed with the seed of the peoples of the lands. And God's covenant, it sounds very, especially from our day and time, our vantage point, it sounds very uh, xenophobic, sounds very uh, racial, but, but in actuality, it's out of respect to the covenant God made with this man, Abraham. It's going to be his nation, his people, his children, through whom the Messiah is to come, and uh, they, they're not respecting the covenant in what they're doing. Now, that's not the sole reason, and, and I really believe this is more a cultural concern than a racial concern. We'll prove that, mm-hmm. and I think there's plenty of indications in the text. Another thing from the reading of the text, and I think this belongs in reading, maybe maybe in thinking or applying, but I'm going to bring it up here, is the motif of trembling. I just mm-hmm. found that very... There's a, there's a poetry to the Old Testament that comes and goes, and you see it a lot in the book of Genesis, a lot in Moses' writing, and I'm seeing it in Ezra, and I believe Ezra probably modeled himself after Moses in a lot of ways. Um, the The idea of trembling, you know, what the, the poetry that I'm talking about is a reiteration of a word in different ways. Um, you know, like uh, one that I'm thinking of is um, Isaac... Isaac's name means he laughs. And then there's one point where Isaac lied and said that uh, Rebekah, his wife, was actually his sister. And the king of the lamb, the land, who was interested in uh, Rebekah, saw through the window uh, Isaac laughing with his wife. You know, and that was a mm-hmm. reference to their intimate relations. But um, laughing was brought up to tie that into Isaac's nature as... Um, a man of peace and a man of joy, maybe. And, uh, you know, you see that a lot with Jacob, and, and I've just, you know, noticed these recurring themes in, in a lot of these places. And here you have the recurring theme of trembling. The first time I saw it was, I should have underlined it, but um, it was a reference to those who tremble at the commandment of God in chapter 9. And then uh, in chapter 10, that's chapter 9, verse 4, those who tremble at the command of God. And um, then in chapter 10, verse 3, you have it used in that sense. Again, those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And then in the next scene, they're gathered together in the month of December. It's raining. They're there to, they're assembled together to talk about what they're going to do in repentance after breaking the commandment of God. And what are the people doing? They're trembling because of the matter and because of the heavy rain. Mm -hmm. Now, the Bible is not like a modern-day novel where little details are thrown in for reality. It doesn't do that. And that's why a lot of people have a lot of questions about the Bible. Every time you see a detail like that that's related to just the scenery or whatever, it's in there to emphasize a theological point. And so that detail is there as a bit of poetry in in life um, to emphasize that these people are assembled here because of their respect for God's Word. Mm-hmm. And he even says they're trembling not just because of the rain, but because of the matter. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's just interesting as, as we read through it. If there was a key word, I think the key word to at least chapters 9 and 10, not, not yeah. necessarily 8, 8 different. But in chapters 9 and 10, your point on Ezra's problem, the the key word there is tremble. So we've covered in this first part these, this nation of Israel, especially Ezra, is so upset that he's pulling hair out of his beard, pulling hair out of his head, because of this intermarriage that's been going on with people from different places. And Drew, as you pointed out right before, uh, right before we took a little break, 
you know, is this like a racial issue? Is this something immoral? Or And it, it's not that. It comes from, it has nothing to do with race or color of skin or anything, or even from a, what area are you from. It's That's not what this is based on. This is not just arbitrary um, racism or unfair, I guess, uh, profiling. Well, it has, it, 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 I think we should explain that, you know, and because I brought it up, that Ezra does mention the holy race or the holy mm-hmm. seed in chapter 9, verse 2. But you have to give yourself a Jewish mind, and when they talk about descendants and offspring, this really comes to light over in the New Testament. It's not always your bloodline. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of this, you think about how much deliberation they went through to determine who was guilty of intermarriage. That's recorded in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. It's quite possible that the question wasn't, did he marry a foreigner or not? But, and this is what what I read one commentator say, did his wife convert to the true and living God, or is she still practicing idolatry? Mm-hmm. So is this a foreign wife? And they look, you know, the nation yeah. was holy. The nation was uh, more than just blood. Um, they didn't so, want but anyone. the holy race is an, is an idea in this text. We can't ignore it, but it's it's different than it has to be different than bigotry and racism. So yeah. we wanted to to use our time in the second section to to talk about all the things that were wrong mm-hmm. with these marriages. Yeah, and they're like you said, they're not wrong just based on a you know based on race or whatever. It is it's on the sanctity of the people. Um, like you mentioned, it's because they worshipped other gods. That's what made them a, quote, foreigner. Um, so the problem was that in this holy nation, we've got people that don't even worship this god that we all have devoted everything to. They so, don't identify with yeah. the nation. Yeah, so they're in line. Israel. They yeah. don't call themselves Israelites. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty glaring problem. For especially with the high views of marriage and what marriage is and how you know it's the two become one. I mean, and so now a guy has joined himself with someone who has no respect for God, and that is half of him. So you can see the big problem and how uh, this is viewed as profaning the nation. Uh, and this goes back all the way. To Drew, as you pointed out to me just a minute ago, uh, all the way back to Exodus chapter 34, in verses 11 through 16, where uh, we have the people coming into the land. The covenant is going to be renewed right here. And notice that some of these names are very similar to what you read in Ezra chapter 9 um, and verse 1. But right here in Exodus 34, verse 11. Observe what I command you in this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Those are very similar to the ones we just read in Ezra 9. Now, um, he's going to say, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. And look down in verse 16. And take care of their daughters for your... And, and you take care of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. What he's saying is, look, be careful. Don't give your sons to their daughters because their daughters are going to make your sons follow other gods, thus profaning Israel. Let me read the reiteration of that over in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So the first thing that was wrong with these marriages were it was that they broke the commandment of God. And the second thing that was wrong with them is practical. God knew that if they married foreign wives who worshipped other gods that those wives would turn away their hearts from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so there was a reason behind the commandment, not that God has to give a reason, 
he is righteous and everything he says is righteous, but he did give a reason, and it's a very practical reason. They will turn you away. You will not turn them to me. They will turn you away from me. And um, Yeah, I want to focus on something you, that you just said. It would turn their hearts away from the Lord. You might remember a guy by the name of Solomon, uh, son of David. He's the king who builds that first temple that we covered uh, in a, a few episodes back. So we have this warning. Look, don't intermingle with these people because they're going to make your sons follow after other gods. And then there in Deuteronomy, they're going to make you follow after other gods. Let's read 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 1. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, the same word foreign, that is such a big problem here in Ezra, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Well, guess what happens to Solomon? Read verse 9 of the same chapter, 1 Kings 11. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. So Solomon is the reason why we are in the situation we're in with Ezra. Because what's going to happen is, uh, and you can read in verse, uh, the following of chapter 11, this uh, prophet Ahijah comes to this guy Jeroboam and cuts his uh, robe into 12 pieces um, and says the kingdom is going to be divided basically because of Solomon. Because of Solomon's folly, and even though he's the wisest man who ever lived, he was really dumb in marrying all these women, and he can't even, he doesn't even have the backbone to stand up to all these wives and say, we're not going to worship your gods, we're going to worship the one true God that's given me all this wisdom. So Solomon and all of his wisdom right here for at least a portion of his life, he probably repented of that, which you can argue from Ecclesiastes either way. Uh, but he probably repented of that. But right here, Solomon's being really dumb to be so smart. He's the reason that the nation is divided and ultimately conquered. Uh, Israel and Judah are both conquered uh, by Assyria and Babylonia, respectively. And so now they're being allowed to come back in this whole big context. So this well, the whole yeah the whole reason mm-hmm. they were they were taken into captivity was idolatry and the last thing Ezra wants is to reboot to start this over again on the wrong foot you know mm-hmm. with foreign wives once more and you also have to ask yourself were these were these necessarily these guys first wives I mean mm-hmm. you know you go to the book of Malachi which is not contemporary with what we're reading, but it's not too far off. And what's happening there is that men are divorcing their first wives, the wife of their youth, the wife that they had made the marital covenant with, putting them away to have um, you know, daughters of a foreign god, as Malachi puts it in Malachi 2, verse 11. And they have broken the covenant, and this is where uh, we have the phrase, God hates divorce. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, he hates the putting away of your first wife for another. And it's very possible, probable, that that had happened, which is you know yeah. yet another wrinkle in this, another reason mm-hmm. that it was taken so seriously. And it, the text just reads like these guys have more than one wife. Uh, I forget where I was reading. There were, there were some of the men that made confessions, and they were, they were saying, you know... We, let um, chapter 10 verse 14 let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times now I don't know you know I may be reading into this I don't know how they would say each one has taken a wife but just you know wife is always in the plural in this text yeah. as if there are many and I wouldn't be surprised if they had several wives we don't know for sure but there's a lot of evidence if you pull Malachi into it that these weren't their first wives. Yeah, and certainly and, um, Solomon was a part of that paradigm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, he had women from like all these countries. Yeah, specifically says. Yeah. Uh, it was something like it's either three hundred wives, seven hundred concubines, or vice versa. But either way, a thousand. It's horrible. It's, you know, <laughs> yeah. about nine hundred ninety-nine too many. 
And uh, it's just, it was ridiculous. It's the pattern they started to follow instead of the pattern of God. And that is the main problem here is God commanded them to marry a woman of the covenant. Okay, that's the way we need to look at it. A woman who respected the, the law of God, who believed in uh, Yahweh as the one true and living God, who kept herself holy to the Lord. Uh, you have emphasized the holiness. And this was not going on. And if you go back and look at chapter 9, verse 1 again, the problem is stated very clearly. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. Mm-hmm. So idolatry is the problem here, not marriage. The, the overall problem is idolatry, and let's not forget that the idol worship involved a lot of things like revelry, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and human sacrifice. Yeah. And it was something that had become so embedded into these cultures that it could not be removed. Little children were being hurt, the children of these men uh, were, and the the others that would be brought into these marriage relationships if it weren't stopped, could have been given up for human sacrifice. So this yep. is an ugly time that is hard for Americans in the 21st century to picture. But that's why it was taken so seriously and why such extreme measures were taken. Mm-hmm. Now, a question that may come up is, is this what Christians are to do? You know, and you know, not in this particular situation. If you are married mm-hmm. to somebody outside the covenant, there are instructions for you to follow in First Corinthians chapter seven, mm-hmm. and it says that if you are married to an unbeliever, you stay married. And the yes, concept of holiness comes up again. Mm-hmm. That relation, Paul says, that relationship has been made holy. And what he mean? He doesn't mean that if you're a Christian wife married to a non-Christian husband that your non-Christian husband suddenly becomes saved. But what he means is you have a Christian home because you are a Christian. It's a Christian home. Your children are growing up in a Christian home. Mm -hmm. You keep that marriage together because God has bound you together. That's the New Covenant way of looking at this. But in the Old Covenant, they were dealing with other issues. It was a different covenant. It was a biological covenant in many ways because it involved the descendants of Abraham. Mm -hmm. Um, So there, there are other... I don't think we want to get into marriage, divorce, and remarriage right now. Certainly not. Uh, that That's biting off more than we can chew. Yeah. But this text has been used to show in that debate that God does take marriage very seriously. Mm-hmm. And under the New Covenant, He takes marriage very seriously as well. And the problem here is they broke the law of marriage, and they had to repent of it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'll just say this. If you break the law of marriage under the New Covenant, the New Covenant law of marriage then God expects us to repent of that as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, we'll someday we'll do Matthew, and we'll talk about that more. Yeah. I'd like to, yeah, rather than, I certainly don't want to get into that ins and outs of marriage, divorce, remarriage right now, but I do want to focus on this, the whole heart of the issue, that is this idea of holiness. Go back to uh, Ezra, if you're following along with us, go back to Ezra chapter 8. And I want to look in verse 28. This is where um, this is where Ezra is telling the priests to carry the gold. And he says this to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy. Now, the Hebrew word right here for holy uh, is a word, Kadesh, which means literally um, to be separated from. It's an idea of being set apart. And you could be uh, Kadesh, this Hebrew word Kadesh, you could be set apart for many different reasons. In fact, uh, this word is used with a little slight change uh, in vowels, is used of people who are devoted to pagan temples and who are practicing the lowest sort of vices and perversions. So this idea means that you're set apart for a specific purpose. So holy, we think of now as pure... Uh, this high lofty idea but this idea of being holy to God you are separated you are set apart Uh, if you want to apply this to New Testament you are the light of the world you are the salt of the earth how can you be hidden Uh, this is the sort of idea where you are specifically designed by God for this purpose and so 
it's interesting that what you read in chapter 9 and verse 1, the people of Israel, the priests and Levites, have not what? They have not separated mm-hmm. themselves. They aren't holy. They're not holy because they have not been set apart. No longer are they this people that they are, they're the only people around that are worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. Well, that's not them anymore. Now they have some people doing that and some people worshiping uh, Baal, maybe at this point, uh, Persia's Ahura Mazda, uh, all these other gods. You know, they look just like every other part, every other nation in the world. They're not like to the nations anymore. They look like every other nation because they're polytheistic, just like everybody else. They worship many other gods. So the and big, as a nation, they were supposed mm-hmm. to be the one nation that looked like God. Yeah, because that's that's you know they're they're separate in that they look like God. Of course, they fell very short of that, and you know that's what sin is. Uh, Paul describes sin as falling short of the glory of God. Romans three twenty three, and you know God is faithful to His spouse. God is not, um, you know, he, he he does not share a position with somebody else, like an idol. Mm-hmm. And these marriages made them look like the rest of the nations of the world, not like God. Yeah. And they were the ones that were supposed to stand out and look like God. That's what was wrong with the marriages. And that's why Ezra and the others took them seriously. And it wasn't just Ezra. One thing that I've always thought is that Ezra was kind of strong-arming these people into doing this. But in actuality, the first person that suggested sending the wives away was one of the men who had committed this sin. Uh, what was his name? She- Shechaniah. Shechaniah. He's the one that made the proposal. I'm sure Ezra kind of thought, Phew. you know, that's what I was going to say. I'm glad Shechaniah said it first. Mm-hmm. But Ezra, went, he, now he did say this was according to the counsel of my Lord, and your translation may make that look like Jehovah, but but actually, you know, it seems like he's talking about maybe Ezra. So he he was following Ezra's teaching, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But that that is the concern here. Uh, it's not just a racial thing. Um, Moses had a wife from another nation, a Cushite wife, and God approved of her and uh, defended her. So it's not. This isn't a passage on interracial marriage. Uh, we probably should have emphasized that more when we first started talking about it. But it's a it's about your covenant to the Lord and about being holy. One of the coolest things about this whole passage of scripture that we've looked at in this episode, to me, is right here in Ezra chapter 8, starting in verse 21. Now, right here from 21 to 23, I think we're going to find just, I, I struggle to find a, a good enough word for this, uh, the utmost confidence. Um, I would say faith, but I think that would just kind of just roll off and people wouldn't get the emphasis I'm trying to put here. That Just an unbelievable show, display of trust, and just sheer confidence in God himself from Ezra. And look in verse 22. They're they're going on this journey. They're praying to God in verse 21. They're fasting. They're praying for a safe journey, just like we would before we go on a trip. In verse 22, Ezra says, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Now, I want to pause right here. If I'm going on a trip, on a four-month trip, and I know that there are people opposing me rebuilding Jerusalem, there are adversaries, there are countless number of just uh, just people on the side of the road that are wanting to rob me, just thieves that are hanging out. Um, if I know those people are there and the king himself says, hey, let me send you a royal envoy to escort you all the way to Jerusalem on your four-month trip, I mean, common sense is going to tell me, yeah, sure. I'll take your I'll take your escort because that's going to keep me safe. It's going to keep my family safe. And this is a this is such a great display of faith here because Ezra says I'm I was ashamed to ask for that. He was ashamed because he told them the hand of our God is good on all who seek Him, 
and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Ezra's yeah, faith... Because he had already told that. He'd gone on the record yeah. with Artaxerxes saying mm-hmm. that. I, I took it a little differently than... than mm-hmm. you're, you're probably right. You always are. But <laughs> well, I took it a little different because it seems to me that it occurred to Ezra to ask for this. Mm-hmm. And it's... You know, we have to read into it because he doesn't spell out exactly what's happening. But it's almost like he wouldn't have written it down here at all if it hadn't occurred to him that we need we need support. We need these horsemen and soldiers. But I can't do that. Here's the process yeah. going on. We need these, but I can't do that because I told Artaxerxes, the hand of my God is with me. Now, do I believe that or do I not believe that? Yeah. I'm ashamed to go to him after I told him that God will protect me and say... Well, God will protect me, but just in case, let's have some soldiers and horsemen. Mm-hmm. So I think I feel like this makes it very real to us. It brings Ezra down to the level of what faith really is. Yeah. And the Bible does that well, whether you're talking about Moses or David or Ezra or you know Paul or Peter. You have real men living faith, and we see that faith isn't some miraculous, you know. Uh, Certitude that never is challenged, but it's challenged all the time. Yeah. And you choose. It's a choice. Am I going mm-hmm. to believe this or not? And sometimes it's a choice that you make while every fiber of your being is fighting against it. And that's kind of how I read into this, that yeah. he's saying, we've got to fast and pray over this to show the king that we do believe this. Yeah, and, uh, and so think, he does it, you know, and and mm-hmm. and God answers his prayer in the end. Yeah, I think what we're saying is, is it, I think we're on the same page here. As of, I mean, to me that even shows this. I guess his his determination to have faith in God, uh, like you said, even though maybe he was really wanting to ask the king for this. At the, the bottom line is he didn't do it, even though maybe yes. common yeah. sense tells him. Hey, the king will give me this stuff if I ask for him. You go back to Ezra chapter 7. Uh, what does it say? Uh, in verse 6, this is talking about Ezra. The king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord's God. If he had asked the king, he would have gotten it. Most definitely. Yeah. He could have had it. So what, admi- what I admire here is not Ezra's courage. What I admire more than that is his faith and his shame. You know, yeah. uh, the, he actually thought through this thing. How? What is my testimony going to be to the king here in asking for these things? Mm-hmm. He's going to look at us as just another nation. I want to be able to get to the other side. And that king here that I got there without the soldiers and horsemen. Yeah. But I don't know that he necessarily, you know, was courageous in doing that. Um, mm-hmm. He, you know, I guess we've already said it. He chose... To believe in it, yeah. That now that's that's the way I read it. Just from the mention of it, it makes me think that he thought about calling for reinforcements. Yeah, and what this just what this produces next for me is what things like what things do I have in my life that are just the soldiers and horsemen? Yes, like I'm what, glad you. Yeah, I thought you were about to move on, but mm-hmm. yeah, we're only getting started on this. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. It makes me curious, because certainly it's not irresponsible for, and at this point I'm thinking out loud. Uh, I have no, it's dangerous. Yeah, I have no prior big research into this. But it makes me wonder, you know, even though common sense says it's fine for you to take soldiers and horsemen, but like you said, he thought this through and said, what does this say about my faith in God? Mm-hmm. And it makes me curious as to... Now, I'm not saying I'm going to go pull the airbags out of my car uh, because I think it's morally wrong to have airbags in my car. But it does make me wonder, like with all of... And I'll I'll just go ahead and say it. I might not should since I'm here on recording. But with all of these different kinds of uh, policies that you can pay for to make sure that you and your family are covered in any and every event. And, I mean, I've got those. I think it's smart to have them. You know, I, I, I pay for them because I think it's responsible. I think it's a good thing to do. Uh, but I did. I mean, when, it, when I did first visit those, I thought, what is this saying about my faith in God? 
and ultimately I decided to to use those things, but it it. I so still it have says this that you don't question. have faith. No. Yeah, that's my burning question. Well, look when I, when I was in college, I went to this uh, one of these dorm devotionals, and and one of the guys in my dorm was doing the devotional, and he was talking about faith, mm-hmm. and he said. He said, guys, I want to challenge you to do something. When you go to Memphis, leave your car door unlocked. He said, uh, when uh, you go, you leave your dorm room in the afternoon, don't lock your door. Have faith in God. Test your faith. Show God that you believe he'll take care of your stuff. And so, I kid you not, he gave that devotional. That very night, his motorcycle helmet was stolen out of his room. <laughs> Probably in response to the devotional, but but he was walking up and down the halls, you know, very angry that somebody had stolen his stuff. That is a fool. Mm-hmm. That is a person who, you know, did not interpret faith properly. Yeah. And I think that um, there is a level at which our concerns need to stop. Mm-hmm. And that's a level of control. You know, God, or responsibility is a better word. What are we responsible for? Well, if you've got a family, and I know you're you're going to have family soon, mm-hmm. but before you have a family, you don't have to worry so much about the life insurance and the insurance and other stuff. But when you get a family, you're responsible for that family, and you need to be shrewd in how you're taking care of your family. And I believe the Lord yeah. taught that. In, in certain parables and things about being shrewd and his statement being wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Um, on the other hand, there are certain things that God is responsible for. And that's where we need to use faith. Mm-hmm. That's why we have Gideon. That's why we have Ezra. To show us that God can take care of things. Look, Gideon couldn't have won that battle on his own with 3,000 guys. So God narrowed it down to 300 to really make sure we understood. Ezra, if somebody wanted to ambush Ezra on this trip, he with the reinforcements, they would have ambushed him. So why not go without anybody? Because that wasn't in Ezra's hands. That was in God's hands. So the question is always, the question of faith is, is this in God's hands or my hands? And there are some things that are in our hands, but far fewer than we think. Mm-hmm. This is what I wanted to go into with church and leadership in churches. We don't use our faith a whole lot because we're always worried about taking a step forward. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if, you know, we lose? What if the contribution isn't big enough? And what if we can't pay for this? And what if people leave? Uh, anytime we do that, that is the the reasoning of man, it's human reasoning that mm-hmm. triumphs over faith. Faith is God will give the growth. God has this under control. The, the phrase of Ezra is the hand of God is on us. Yeah. And we will prevail if God wants us to prevail. And uh, the church could use a good dose of faith these days because there's very few Christians who are running on faith, they are rather, um, you know, using human reasoning. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with the with the speculation about, and I think a lot of churches get, uh, I think this is why a lot of churches end up either just staying stagnant or end up declining as a whole because they're not, I guess they're not, doing much and that probably stems from this idea well what if this what if that and in your efforts to try and control it yourself you're not trying anything new you're not you're not progressing in any way mm-hmm. you're uh, kind of this idea of uh, hey let's do this well we've never done that before we're not going to do it and see you know? and, and we're not ashamed to say that anymore mm-hmm. it's not that we're scared I used to think that we shouldn't be scared but I'm reading this and I think the application is you can have some concerns, but do, but then you need to go into your prayer closet or whatever and decide what is is where's my faith on this? 
Mm-hmm. And Ezra went in and he saw, if I take these reinforcements, I'm not a man of faith. I told Artaxerxes, the hand of God was on us. The hand of God is on us. And, uh, you know, when we consider bold measures and back away from them, it's not that we were scared. It's that we weren't ashamed of our lack of faith. And in the yeah. end, we got to be embarrassed for a lack of faith. And that embarrassment or shame should push us to go forward with God's strength and God's help instead of just going on human strength and reasoning. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we are we're right the opposite. We're almost ashamed to do something on faith. I really think so. Yeah. For, yeah. Like with a if I'm tr- I'm just trying to think like if someone you know if someone comes to me for a youth program or event or something says, hey, let's let's try this. And I'm considering it, and this is going to cost me a ton of money. And I'm considering it, I'm saying, well, I could plan to, and you know, this is considering that I'm completely in charge of everything doing my budget. It's different from that, obviously, in practical application. But if I'm sitting there thinking, man, uh, I'm going to need this much money for this. I don't know if I'm going to get it. And then if I plan it, and I don't get the money, I'm going to look like a fool. And people are going to, you know, then I'm going to be ashamed of of my actions here going off of faith and then not working out. I'm going to end up being ashamed. That boy's before. got his head in the clouds. Yeah, you know, they're going to say he doesn't. Silly guy. Yeah. They're silly say, youth minister. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. know anything about the real world. He's just idealistic. Yeah, he yeah. He doesn't really, doesn't think things through, not responsible, all this stuff. But when in reality, all that would have been weighed and weighed and weighed against faith, and certainly with a trying to think through the process just like Ezra did, and then deciding, look, I'm preaching faith. For me, I preach faith to the teenagers all the time. I tell them to let go and let God all the time. Uh, Psalm 46.10 uh, is something I've talked to them over and over and again. Be still and know that I am God. Uh, this sort of an idea. But then here I'm in my office, and it comes down to the nitty-gritty and even though I'm preaching faith to everybody else, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to do this based on, you know, it's, the idea is not I am ashamed to have doubts here that God can't handle this. It's I'm, I'm ashamed that, you know, I'm ashamed of people. I'm ashamed of my faith in people looking at me saying, well, he doesn't act on reason or anything. He just, he's got his head in the clouds. He's not responsible. And people who put that shame in your heart fellow Christians would have been laughing at Ezra or shaking their heads at Ezra. Because you think, like you said, the king would have given him those horsemen and soldiers. Mm -hmm. Would have given it to him in a heartbeat. Why not take it? It it wasn't going to cost Ezra or the people of Israel anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can just see, you know, our people in his day saying, oh, what a foolish decision Ezra made. Yeah. So this is a powerful lesson, you know, ashamed Ezra was ashamed of his lack of faith. It it reminds me I almost hesitate to say this, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a with a man who is who was in leadership in the church for a while. Uh, and I was talking with him and somehow we got around to talking about finances and I ended up saying, Well, it's not all about money. I ended up saying it's I'm not or I think I ended up saying, Well, I'm not worried about money. Mm-hmm. Like saying I'm not worried about how much money I'm gonna make or, you know, just how much money's coming in. I said, Well it's not all about that. I'm not worried about how much money I'm gonna make and the guy laughed at me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kinda of with this idea of I guess that's why I brought it up, because that was in the back of my mind. Kind of this idea of you don't know what you're talking about. Because he said, Well, I guess I've been doing things wrong for a very long time. <laughs> and I was thinking in my head I guess so, but yeah. I didn't say it out loud. But not until now. Yeah, but I was. Well, I don't know. I was thinking in my head there. I know, wow. but now we're we're going to broadcast it. So. Yeah, yeah. Now we'll broadcast it. But yeah. I was, you know, I'm, I'm I'm sitting here saying basically in that I'm saying I know I, I know I'm going to be taken care of. I've got faith. God's going to take care right. of me. If I don't have a paycheck, I, I still think I'm going to be taken care of. I'm not going to fret and worry uh, like Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount I'm not going to worry so much about that I know if I seek God and his kingdom that all that kind of stuff is going to be added unto me however it's added to me great fine and good 
But I know if that, if I'm trying to do that always, then I know I'm going to be taken care of. And in that context, I'm saying, well, it's not all about money. I'm not worried about money. But then I got this guy laughing at me saying, well, I guess I'm doing, I guess I've been doing things wrong for a long time. Yeah. But it comes down to, are you, are we ashamed? And I love how you've been focusing on the idea of shame. Are we ashamed of our faith? Or are we ashamed of our, uh, I guess, you know, minute attempts at control within ourselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's definitely two sides of that coin, as you pointed out. It's very, I mean, this is, now I guess, uh, I hope listeners, all two of them, can see why we decided that this passage of Scripture is such a huge thing to bring out for our apply section. Yeah. Well, that's, that's it for the book of Ezra, but it's not it for Ezra. We're going to go right into the book of Nehemiah, and Ezra is very much a part of that. So I hope that you'll join us for the first episode of Nehemiah as a part of the 66 podcast. If you want to contact us, Andrew's email is akingsley at arcoc.com. And by the way, that is also his username and all of his login information. Uh, my email address is dkaiser at arcoc.com. You can see us online at the66.net. And uh, we hope that you'll continue to join, it, to join us as we get into the book of Nehemiah next episode.